open up your Bibles today to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. Tell you, Dad, Chuck Farina did such a great job today in the classic service talking about the fear of the Lord. I would encourage you to go onto our Facebook page and watch that message. It was a powerful message. He said it was going to take an hour to preach, and he did it in 30 minutes. So that's pretty good. He's my hero because I don't know that I could do that. Oh, lighten up. It's okay. You can laugh. It's all right. Some of you are like, no, it's true. Yeah, I know. Anyway, Acts chapter 16. <laughs> Acts chapter 16. We're going to be jumping around a little bit between Acts and Philippians. So if you want to kind of put your finger there or get that ready in your phone. I want to preach to you a message today called From Mediocrity to Movement. From mediocrity to movement. Look at your neighbor and say, are you mediocre? I hope not. (laughs) And if you are, it's okay, because we're going to talk today about how to get out of that mediocrity. You see, there's a difference between people who make a difference and people who live in mediocrity. You know, I've noticed this. They don't create monuments to people who do nothing. Have you ever noticed that? You can go to Washington, D.C. I've had the privilege of going there once. I've had the privilege of going all over the world and many nations, and I've seen many monuments, but I've never seen one created to the person who did nothing. They don't put placards on places where nothing happens. You know, you ever seen those? You ever traveled around a little bit on the road and, you know, pulled off to one of those things, historical monument, and you want to see what happened there? Have you ever been to one that says nothing happened here? Just you're not going to see it. Scripture, Hebrews chapter 11, is a long list of names. If you ever go there, it's it's an inspiring list. But I promise you, you will not find a people that had no impact there. In fact, many historians call it the hall of faith. It's people who lived by faith. Even the ones who aren't named are still there saying they did something for the kingdom. And the book of Acts is a book of actions, not a book of inaction. Let me say that again. The book of Acts is a book of actions, not a book of inaction. Lou Engel, the founder of the Call Prayer Movement, recently launched the next phase of his ministry, even as he's entering into his 70s. And now this new phase he's calling the send. He went from the call to the send. It's a missionary movement. This is something that is happening all across denominational lines, all across the body of Christ. There is a call going out saying, yes, we need to spend time in the presence of God. Yes, we need to spend time in the prayer houses. Yes, we need to spend time in the presence of God. But at some point, at some time, God will call you out of that place and into action. Moses would spend 40 days and 40 nights without food or water on the mountain of God. And then God said, now go. 
When, when Jesus was on the mountain, he, he called up three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John. And in that time, all of a sudden, on the mountaintop, Moses and Elijah appeared to him. And when Peter wakes up out of his sleep, he says, oh, Lord, we're going we're gonna to make some tents here. We're going to dwell here. I mean, if you're in that kind of a place, you want to stick around. Amen. I believe we need mountaintop experiences. I preached a whole message about it last week. I believe we need encounters with God, but encounters will lead us somewhere. Encounters will lead us to action. The rally cry for this new initiative of Lou Engel, and I like it so much, that's why I'm saying it, is the war on inaction has begun. The war on inaction has begun. You see, we can either try to live complacent Christian lives or we can live the adventure that is following Christ. I promise you, I guarantee you, if you are a true follower of Christ, you will not be bored very often. <laughs> Boredom is just not, I mean, my, my kids, my younger kids, the ones that we adopted, are kind of, some of them are in that stage of life right now. No offense, kind of like Wesley, right? You know what I'm talking about. That, that stage of life where you just don't have nothing to do. I don't remember that stage of life. Anybody remember that stage of life where you just don't have nothing to do? And now, right now, one of my, what my little six-year-old says quite often, Dad, I'm so bored. I'm like, don't say that word. If, you, if you're bored, I'll find something for you to do. Come on, any parents in the house, right? I got plenty to do, right? I'm telling you, when you're following Christ, boredom is not an option. It's just not. There's be plenty of time for resting by the river, and I'm not talking about not resting, and my son will correct me later if I don't say this. Yes, I believe in rest and relaxation, and I'm trying to learn all of that too. But there's a reason for the rest. Come on. There's a reason even for the rest. It's so that you can get up out of your rest and have the strength for the next assignment. So, Pastor, why have we been going through the book of of Acts, chapter by chapter, even verse by verse? Why have you been doing this to us for months now? This is why. Because I want to live like Jesus intended his church to live so that we can have the impact he designed us to have. If you look at Acts chapter 16, we're going to start in verse 13. Let me give you a little background. Paul and Silas, Paul and Barnabas have already split up and Barnabas is off doing his own thing. We don't know what that was because it's not recorded in scripture, but, but here Paul is going out with Silas. He's got a new partner and Luke is also going out. You know that because even in this chapter, Luke literally says, and we went. So Luke is with them as well. So he's got his entourage. He's got his team together, and he's headed out on his second missionary journey. And the Spirit led Paul, Silas, and Luke to Philippi. And I'm not, I'll talk about that in a minute. But he led them to Philippi to preach the gospel and establish the church there. Let's pick up in verse 13. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. So if you remember in our study of Acts, this is like Cornelius. 
This is like some, this is like the Ethiopian eunuch, those who worship God but didn't have a fullness of the gospel at this time. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to go to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. So here it is. On seeking a place of prayer, Paul, Silas, and Luke were seeking a place of prayer, possibly a synagogue, possibly a place of of Jewish uh, believers or Jewish people who had gathered for prayer on a regular basis. They were seeking that out. They had just come into this city. So they went down to the river, and there they encountered several women. One of them was Lydia. She was from modern-day Turkey, modern-day Turkey. And she and her household were saved and gloriously baptized. Can I just stop and say this? That when you read the Gospels, when you read the book of Acts, recognize that all of our history doesn't come from Jerusalem. Let me say that again. All of our Christian history doesn't come from Jerusalem. Can I tell you that that Islam did not begin until many hundreds of years later after Christianity? And though Islam has taken over much of the Middle East, I'm here to tell you that the greatest revival known to man right now is happening in the Middle East. Did you know that? Iran is exploding. And we think, oh, man, these are lands where the gospel has never gone forth. No, the gospel has been there for centuries. And now it's exploding once again. Can somebody say praise God for that? Amen? So here she was from modern-day Turkey. Now she's in what is modern-day Greece. And then her home, we know later on in the passage, seems to become like a center for kingdom activity. Possibly even the first house church was in Lydia's home in Philippi. Now think about Philippians. How many of you love the book of Philippians? Isn't Philippians an awesome, awesome book? Well, thank you for the three of you that like Philippians. The rest of you, you really, really need to open the book of Philippians and read it because it's got some really good stuff. I hope you're with me today. I know we had two services, but come on. Philippians 121, some of the greatest, greatest Christian sayings we have. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Philippians 2, verse 9, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Aren't you glad we have that one in the Scripture? Oh, Philippians three fourteen. this is a favorite of many, especially athletes. I press on towards the goal except it's not for a better body, right? For the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Uh, Philippians 4, 6, for those of you that kind of go through those times of your life, be anxious for what? Nothing. But in everything, by what? Prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then one of my favorites that I pray on a regular basis, and may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, that it will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. These are all out of the book of Philippians, and if it hadn't have been for Peter, or excuse me, for Paul, Silas, and Luke going into this city that they were led to by the Holy Spirit and beginning to seek a place of prayer, none of these scriptures we would have today. Of course, the favorite of all, 
Philippians 4.13. What is it? I can do, come on church, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. All this because they were led by the Spirit. You see, while in Philippi, after the nice ladies came to Christ, Paul met another young lady who wasn't so nice. If you will, turn with me to Acts 16, verse 16. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, there it is again, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money from her owners by fortune telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. Before we move on this passage, I want you to hear your pastor say this. I want you to see that the great apostle Paul, the writer of two thirds of the New Testament books, was annoyed. Other versions say agitated, bothered by a teenager. Come on, somebody. You can still be holy and be annoyed. Hallelujah. I just got the joy on that one right there. Come on, anybody. You're like, oh, oh, we shouldn't be annoyed, Pastor. Well, Paul was. How many of you know emotion is a godly thing? And even sometimes we get annoyed, but we just get annoyed at the wrong things. I mean, I am, I am shocked that it took Paul several days to finally do something about this young slave girl. Hmm. But he didn't slap her. He just cast it out of her. Hallelujah. That's the right, that's the right way to do it. Amen. So this young slave girl had a spirit, or the spirit had her. The actual Greek word here, is Numa Pythona. It means a python spirit or a spirit of a python. That's literally what the Greek says there. The Lexham Bible Dictionary says about the python spirit. According to Greek mythology, python refers to the snake or dragon that guarded a shaft at Delphi and was destroyed by Apollo. This creature later became associated with soothsaying, divination, or even <laughs> ventriloquism. People often brought inquiries to female seers at Delphi who entered the temple of Apollo and divined answers by the power of the spirit. This python spirit is later clarified as referring to fortune-telling. Wow. Think about it. There was this demonic principality and power. We're worried about traffic. Come on. And here Paul and Silas are dealing with principalities and powers in Philippi that are literally disrupting everyone that they come into contact with. And this python spirit has wrapped itself around this little girl and is literally saying things and fortune telling. You don't think this can happen? This is the real deal here, people. We're not talking about somebody who is playing with some cards. We're talking about somebody who is full of the devil, and the devil is speaking into their ear and telling them what to say. You, 
can I just talk about spiritual warfare for a second, just real quick? See, in America, we get this weird stuff about demon possession and demons and all that. And like, well, you know, that's just for other nations or that's just somebody made up emotions or this or that. Or we're going to go ahead and and we're going to, you know, just take it to the psychiatrist and let them label it or whatever. Can I tell you, demons are as real today as they were in the book of Acts. And, and we don't have to glorify them. We don't have to magnify them. But we do need to recognize that the demonic is still on the attack. And sometimes what we're dealing with is not the individual, but it's a spirit. And that's really, in a mature way, let me say it this way. Paul, when, he's, when he was annoyed, he wasn't so much annoyed with the girl as he was with the demon inside the girl. Because, you see, he didn't rebuke the girl. He rebuked the demon. And when we're dealing with people, sometimes we need to recognize that there is a spirit and it's not the Holy Spirit that is at play in someone's life. And if we truly love the individual, then we'll come and we'll come with power and we'll cast out the spirit out of them. I'm talking about going from mediocrity to movement. I'm talking about it's time for the church of Jesus Christ and it's time for the church of Jesus Christ at New Day Church to stop living in mediocrity and start moving towards the things of the Spirit. Amen. Hallelujah. As my father-in-law did this morning. Amen. Praise God, preacher. That's good. I'll steal that from him. Not only do Paul and Silas see high-ranking businesswomen coming to Christ in Philippi, but they also dethrone a principality and power from its high place, and they cast that python spirit out. And watch this. They set a trafficked teenage girl free. Don't tell me that the Scripture is not relevant. Yes, they started a riot. Yes, they got beaten with rods. Yes, they got thrown into the deepest part of a Philippian dungeon. But what happens? They begin to sing songs and hymns and bring the prison house down. The prison doors of all of the prisoners opened up. The jailer and his entire household get saved and baptized. Paul and Silas are treated to a nice hot meal. I'm paraphrasing the rest of this. The city officials treated them kindly and begged them to please leave their city. Paul and Silas said, fine, we'll leave your city, but not before we go meet with our new believers and make sure that everything's established and make sure that Lydia is okay and the church is okay before we leave, okay? Is that okay with you? And the city officials were like, sure, whatever you want, just leave, please. All of that in one chapter of Acts. If those things happened throughout our entire lifetime, we'd be Christian celebrities. Come on, somebody. Can I show you this? Paul and Silas were not looking to be famous. They were seeking to make Jesus famous throughout the world. Let me say it again. Paul and Silas were not looking to be famous. They were seeking to make Jesus famous throughout the world. What David and Christina are doing are not about them. They didn't adopt so that they could feel better about themselves. Hello? 
They didn't adopt because they thought, oh, it's just, I'm just going to feel so good about this afterwards. We haven't really got to talk too much, but adoption, adoption people understand this, that adoption is not some rosy, nice little path that's all like, oh, it's just flowers and everybody's happy and love will keep us together. <laughs> yeah, I thought so. It's not about us. It's about him. It's about obedience. It's about saying to the Father, Father, here's my life. What do you want to do with it? When they go on the mission field, it's not about, oh, that sounds so cool. I think we're going to, just like your father gave you advice, David, if you can find anything else to do, do it if you can be happy. You see, although I came from a family of preachers, I didn't know them. I knew my aunt as a small child. But I didn't grow up in a pastor's home. I didn't grow up in a ministry home. I grew up in a, in a home of loving Christians who served the church. My dad was a deacon probably for 40 years out of his life. I mean, I, I get that. My parents did, did youth ministry. They did children's ministry. They did those things, but they did it all as volunteers. My parents never got paid a day in their life to do any type of ministry. Why? Because he was a carpenter. She was a stay-at-home mom. And then later in life, she worked at Dillard so she could clothe me. That's where I get my sense of style from, was that later on in life. But my parents didn't raise me to be a pastor. My parents didn't raise me to go into ministry. It took my youth pastor saying to me when I came to him and said, I feel that I'm called to go into ministry. He said to me, he said, I knew that. I said, why didn't you tell me that? He said, I knew it years ago. I said, why didn't you tell me? Would have saved all this grief of trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. He said, because I know that if I were to go to you and say, Ricky, I think you've got a call of God on your life and you need to start fulfilling that call and going after that call. He said, when things got rough, you'd blame me for your call instead of turning to God. And he's right. There have been hard times. There have been hard places. And I couldn't turn to my youth pastor and say, you called me. I couldn't turn to somebody else and say, you called me to do this. I have to turn to God and say, God, you're the one. So I trust in you. I lean on you. I depend on you. Anybody with me in this place? Quickly, I want to show you three simple things I see in Acts 16 to move us from complacency to competency, from being callous to being caring, from being lukewarm to being hot or cold, from being flaky to being fulfilled, from inaction to action and from mediocrity to movement. These are the three things I see, especially in this chapter. First of all, I see daily disciplines. Everybody say daily disciplines. In verse 13, it said, on the Sabbath, they went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. Verse 16, once when we were going to the place of prayer. Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. In one chapter, prayer is mentioned three different times. And do you know that the New Testament is full of these types of statements? Even when Jesus was training his disciples, we would find him in the synagogue. We would find him going to the place of prayer. We would find him doing the things that he knew that he needed to do to sustain his life. 
prayer, worship, the word, fellowship, meeting together, breaking bread, and more. These were all part of the regular daily life of the New Testament church. All of it. You see, they understood something. They understood that to follow the call of God, to do what they were called to do, whether they were called to be a prophet, pastor, teacher, evangelist, or apostle, or whether they were called to be a deacon, or whether they were called to serve the poor, whatever it was that they were called to do, they knew that it took a daily walk with Jesus. Oh, it just got real quiet in this place. I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, out of the three, this is the hardest one. This is the hardest one. But to quote an old proverb, how do you eat an elephant? Anybody know how to eat an elephant? One bite at a time. That's exactly right. You see, moving from mediocrity to movement doesn't always take a cataclysmic shift. Mostly it begins with doing something daily. The statement in verse 13, when they were finding a place of prayer, we already read it. They met Lydia. And the church began the statement in verse 16. They were seeking another place of prayer. And that's where they met the Python spirit and the slave girl. The statement in verse 25, when they were praying and singing at midnight. Oh, wouldn't that be wonderful if all my Africans were in the house? They'd be going, yes, pastor. Yes, pastor. Yes, because they love midnight prayer. But they weren't doing it because they were just having midnight prayer. They were doing it because they were in a dungeon. But can I tell you, even in the dungeon, it didn't stop their prayers. Even in the dungeon, it didn't stop their worship. You see, it's in the daily disciplines where we find the spirit ready to move. Let me say that again. It's in the daily disciplines where we will find the spirit ready to move. But can I tell you, look at this. That's why our enemy flesh fights so, us so hard in this area. I told you this is the hardest one. Our flesh knows that we will find victory in the daily times, in the weekly times, in the times of fellowship. Why do you think it's so hard to come to church? It's not because it's so hard to come to church. Did you get that? It's not because traffic is hard. It's not because the service is too early. (laughs) It's not because the kids are hungry. It's not because, well, we got too many kids. I got the most out of all of you. It's not, it's not because of any of those things. Well, I fought with my wife. You still go to work when you fight with your wife. Why is it hard? Oh, because we just can't find a good church. 4,500 churches in the Metroplex. And you can't find a good church? Why don't you stop finding a good church and start being a good church? Oh, (sighs) I'm not beating you up. I'm just saying to you, why is it so difficult to come to church? Because the enemy flesh doesn't want you to be here. Because the enemy flesh knows that when you come into this place or when you gather in the foyer or when you sit down next to somebody and you begin to worship, that God begins to move, yes, that that a message begins to come, yes, but also that even you need what the person next to you needs. You need what the person next to you has. Or maybe you have what the person next to you needs at that moment. Why is it hard to pray? Not because it's hard to pray. 
I mean, come on, really. Is it really hard to pray? Listen, when we started these 6 a.m. prayer meetings on Tuesdays, you know, the number, I'll just go ahead and tell you, the number one staff person to fight it was me. Pastor Joe, Pastor Nathan, they were like, whew, 6 a.m.? That means we got to get up at 5 a.m.? Okay, let's do it! Don't tell me this generation is against prayer or against worship or against the things of God. It was this old dude right here that was like, really? God can hear us at 7, can he? Can I just do it from somewhere? You know why it's hard? Because your enemy flesh knows that when you get into that place of prayer, that God is going to meet with you there. Why is it hard to read the Word of God? Not because it's hard to read the Word of God. Are you getting the theme here? Oh, I don't, I don't understand all the these and thous. Open up your Bible app. You've got about 500 different versions you can read from, and I would say that most of them are pretty healthy. Yeah, there's a few weird ones out there, but give me a break. Reading the Word of God is not hard because reading the Word of God is hard. Reading the Word of God is hard because your flesh knows that as you feed on the Word of God that it's going to starve the flesh. And it doesn't like that. We have this saying. I haven't said it in a while, and I need to say it again. The flesh is a pig. Stop feeding it. Let it die. I'll move on. Number two. Not only daily disciplines, but total devotion. Let's turn to Paul's own letter in the Philippians. After writing how zealous he was in Philippians chapter 3, verse 7, the first few chapter, or first few verses there in Philippians 3 was talking about how zealous he was. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews and all of these other things. And then even to the point of persecuting the church, that's how zealous he was. But in verse 7 he says, But whatever were gains to me I now consider loss. For the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage. That I may gain Christ and be found in him. Uh, Let me stop and pause there for a minute because this memory, I I feel like the Holy Spirit wants to remind you of something that he reminded me of. When I was a youth pastor, we had this thing, and, and, uh, and it was a big trash can. And we would take it, and we would put it on our stage. Wouldn't that just be lovely right up here? You know, a big old 55-gallon trash can. And I'm not even talking about a pretty trash can. It was just a trash can we found. And we put that big old trash can up on the stage, and this is what we told our teenagers. We said, anything that separates you from God is not worth it. Get rid of it. It's garbage. And it effectually became known as the sin trash. And we had kids bringing junk, I mean, drugs, alcohol, pictures of girlfriends. I mean, it was varied. I remember one thing that, that came in was a Ouija board. And the Ouija board was placed in the sin trash. And every few weeks, I can't remember, every few weeks we would get out a blowtorch. And right there in the sanctuary, we'd pick out some trash and we would burn it. 
Can I tell you, as God is my witness, Joni was there. She can tell you we took a blowtorch to the Ouija board, and the Ouija board didn't burn until we rebuked it. True story. We rebuked it, cast the spirit out of the Ouija board, then the Ouija board burned. True story. Isn't that not right? Don't worry, I'm not going to bring a 55-gallon drum. I can't promise that. But I will say I'm not planning on it at this stage. But the point is there are things in our life that we need to count as garbage compared to him. Garbage. And he said, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that is which is through faith in Christ. And then he talks about pressing on. The point is here is that Paul in Philippians 3, writing to this beloved Philippian church that we're reading about out of Acts chapter 16, he was telling them nothing is worthy of your devotion like Christ is worthy of your devotion. You see, the true believer has no room in his heart or life for the things which seem to satisfy the ungodly. The true believer has no room in his heart or his life for the things which seem to satisfy the ungodly. You see, do you hear how I'm not saying a bunch of things that I think you should get rid of? I'm not naming a bunch of things because can I tell you what I've learned? I've learned if I name, oh, well, you got to get rid of this or you got to get rid of that. If I name a bunch of things, then somebody says, oh, well, I don't do any of those things, so I'm okay over here. Why don't you just open up your life and say, Holy Spirit, is there anything in my life that offends you? Is there something that I have in my home that offends you? And see what he says. And then count it as garbage. Count it as loss. Because he's so much better. He requires total devotion. The true believer is consumed with devotion to Christ. As Russ Taft sang many years ago, Not going to bow to your idols. Not going to bow, oh no. I'm not going to bow to your idols. I won't bow down, oh no. And that's what I'm telling these things today. I'm not going to bow down to you. We can't serve both God, Scripture says, and mammon. We can't serve both God and anything else. Amen? Lastly, Not only total devotion and daily discipline, but what I see in Acts chapter 16 and in the Philippian churches, they had radical obedience. Radical obedience. Paul and his companions were willing to follow the Spirit wherever he was going to lead them. In Acts 16, verse 6 through 10, we find this situation. It's one of my favorite things when somebody's asking me about the will of God. How do I know the will of God? What is the will of God for my life? I'm not, I mean, specifically saying, you know, I, I, I don't know if I should go to this school or if I should do this thing or if I should go on this missions trip or, or if I should marry this person, those types of things. When you're talking about the will of God, just turn to Acts chapter 16, verse 6 through 10, and you will find a formula that worked for Paul. It says, Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of, ah, I knew I was going to mess that up, and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. First obstacle, the Holy Spirit kept them from preaching the word of God in the province of Asia. Do you realize the Holy Spirit kept them from doing something that Jesus told them to do already? Well, that'll blow your theology. Jesus said what? Go into all 
the world and do what? Preach the gospel. But the Holy Spirit kept Paul from preaching the gospel in the province of Asia. Not that he kept him forever from preaching the gospel in the province of Asia, but at that moment, he said, I've got another assignment for you. But the interesting thing is he didn't tell him what the next assignment was yet. Then verse 7, when they came to the border of Mycenae, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. Now, come on, Holy Spirit. We're trying to preach the gospel here. We're trying to do the thing that you've called us to do and told us to do. Why do you keep stopping us? So they passed by Mycenae and went down to Troas. And during the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia, modern-day Greece, standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. And after Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Radical obedience. So radical that they were, that they were listening to even the promptings of the Holy Spirit of where and where not to preach. I'm not saying that you should not witness to somebody unless you have some kind of a Holy Ghost encounter. I'm not saying that. I believe we should witness to anybody, anywhere, anytime. Somebody say amen to that. But if the Holy Spirit stops you from doing it, then can I just go ahead and say it? Then stop doing it. Because how many of you know we can't do everything? That's why we got the body of Christ. Because if the body of Christ is doing what the body of Christ is supposed to do, then there was somebody going to Asia. There was somebody going to Mycenae. There was somebody going to Troas. And Paul was going on to Macedonia. You understand? Radical obedience, though. I may have given up after the first obstacle. <laughs> I said, well, I guess God didn't want us to preach anymore. He must not be calling me to preach anymore. No. They continued on. The New Testament believers were willing to give their lives to obey the call to preach the gospel wherever the Spirit led. Radical obedience wasn't just in the apostles who preached the gospel. It was in the sacrificial way the church joined together. In Philippians chapter 4, they got this spirit of radical obedience. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, it says there, I can do all, thing, all this through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Yet you yourself also know, Philippians, that from the first preaching of the gospel. After I left Macedonia, no church shared with me. I already told you about this earlier on. But here's what I want you to see in verse 16. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. You see, the Philippian church said, God has so imprinted us, so empowered us through the teachings and the preachings of Paul and Silas and Luke. We've been so uh, amazed by what God has done among us. We want to help others. We want to help other cities. We want to bring joy to other cities. And we can't go because we've got Philippi to reach. But we'll send this one. We'll send Paul on to Thessalonica. And we'll make sure he's taken care of so that he can preach the gospel without worrying about anything. The Philippians joined Paul in preaching the gospel by sending him with their finances. You see... We need to reach our community. Let me say it this way. God has given each one of us a sphere of influence. I remember back in my Youth Alive days, they had this little thing. I don't know if they still have it. But it was a little sheet that we would hand out to students in high schools and junior highs. And in that little sheet, 
I think some of the teachers will get a kick out of this. They had a little desk all lined up. Do they still do desks li- in lines and rows? Aren't they more like in circles and sit at big old tables and, you know, it's all like community, you know. But at that time, most of the classrooms were set up with little desks. And so we had that. And then we told the students, write your name where you sit in this class, in science class. Put your name at your seat. Now, this is, again, back in the day. Who is assigned to sit around you or typically sits around you in that science class? So they would write Bobby and Jill and, you know, wait, what would it be today? Carissa and uh, Stone and, you know, Kale, you know. And so they would put all these different, they'd put these names. One of those is my nephew, yes. And they would put these names on there around their seats. And then we would say, now let's pray over that sheet. And we would pray for those students. And then we would send them back to school on Monday and say, now you've got your sphere of influence. That's your calling. You don't have to reach the whole school. You don't have to reach the entire campus. Just reach those around you. Basic missionary understanding 101. Reach the sphere of influence that God has placed in front of you. And as we do that, we partner with those who are going into their mission field. You see, 3.1 billion people have yet to hear the gospel. Let that sink in for a minute. Some of the latest statistics out, 3.1 billion people have yet to hear the gospel. Now, maybe they've heard a portion from certain pseudo-Christian groups, but not hearing the full gospel. Can you just let that weigh for a minute? Latest statistics from DFW, 7.5 million people in the Metroplex. Out of that 7.5 million, approximately 20% go to church at any time during a month period. That leaves about 5 million people who are not connected to a church in any way, shape, or form. Ah, it's the Bible Belt. Everybody knows Jesus. Maybe they've been presented with the gospel, many of them but they're still not serving him. You see, the task sometimes when I mention these numbers can seem great, and they are, but they are not impossible. Come on, somebody. They are not impossible. You know how I know that? Because out of Jesus' first call to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every nation and to the ends of the earth, in just a generation, the disciples, the apostles, and the churches went out to every region and touched every region that they'd ever been. They did it without social media. They did it without microphones. They did it without vehicles. They did it without any modern conveniences. How did they do it? They did it because they were willing to radically obey, to be totally devoted. They were walking in daily discipline, walking in daily communion with God. There's a song that's been very popular of the last few years. I think it came out in 2013 is what I saw. Many of you will know it immediately as soon as I just mention one line. It says, Spirit, lead me where my trust is without borders. Let me walk upon the waters wherever you would call me. Take me deeper than my feet could ever wander 
and my faith will be made stronger in the presence of my Savior. I want you to stand with me. Susan, could you come to the keyboard? I like this quote. I have no idea who the person is, so please forgive me if there's some sham or weirdo. Uh, But I just like their quote. Movements aren't birthed from mundane mediocrity. They are birthed by a courageous individual who has turned their pain or frustration into a mission to serve others. I found that at the end of my preparation. And I thought that kind of sums up what I feel like the Holy Spirit is saying. Even in our pain, even in our frustration, even in the things that we struggle with, if we could give those to the Lord and say, Lord, what do you want to do with this? I know individuals who are called to reach trafficked men and women all around the world. And not all of them, but many of them have been touched by the very pain that they're trying to reach others in. But they can only do that because they turn that pain over to the Lord. And now the Lord has given them a mission to reach people. I know many, many great ministers, and I know one in particular who's doing an incredible job in Springfield, Missouri area where, where he is literally seeing drug, ag- drug addicts come to Christ at, at, an, at an incredible rate. Guess what? He was once a drug addict. He got saved, baptized in the Holy Spirit. He's got a passion to reach the lost at any cost. I'm not saying you can't reach drug addicts unless you've been through drugs, but I'm saying that God can take your pain, He can take your frustration, He can take even your mediocrity, and He can begin to move you in the Spirit. If you will simply yield your life to Him and yield yourself to Him and say, Lord, I'm willing to give up other stuff, even stuff that that to others aren't a sin or aren't a big deal. But God, I'm willing to give it up so I can be completely devoted to you and your call. God, I'm willing to go where you call me to go. I'm willing to go to my neighbor, to go to my coworker. God, I'm willing. And I'm going, and the only way I'm stopping is if you stop me. radical obedience would you just close your eyes and just for a few minutes as Susan plays would you just recommit yourself if you want to come down to the altar if you want to turn around in your chair if you want to go up against a wall wherever if you need to get away from your chair sometimes I find that's the best thing for me is just to get away and move away from where I'm at if you need to move away for a moment then this altar is open to you. I just want us to recommit and say, God, we're tired of mediocrity. We're tired of complacency. God, we're coming after you with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength. And God, we know that you're the one guiding us and leading us even into that. I'm going to stop resisting the call of the Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Jesus. Some of you just need to go ahead, pray out loud. Begin to pray. Begin to pray in the Spirit. Begin to pray in your language. 
Some of you need to out loud say, Holy Spirit, reveal to me my own heart so that anything that is offensive to you, God, we can take care of. I'm open to you, Holy Spirit. Hallelujah. forgive me for allowing my flesh forgive me for allowing my flesh to rule over my spirit God I want to follow you with my whole heart I don't want my flesh to rule me anymore you call. 